I'm Arthur Falls, today on The Ether Review. Kenny Rowe has been a part of the MakerDAO team since shortly after its inception. Initially a community organiser, Kenny has become more involved in the governance of Maker. This is the second time he has appeared on The Ether Review, the first being early 2016. Kenny's goodwill and spirit of experimentation is infectious, and this is a particularly meandering and enjoyable conversation. Over the course of the episode, we cover MakerDAO governance, the decision-making around hard forks, DAOs in relation to stable value tokens, the double token model of stable token platforms, community diversification and how it relates to application development, the serfdom of the attention economy, Bitcoin on telephone poles, friction and fundraising rails, and the magic of technology. How did you get into this space in the first place? What what year did you get? When did you get into crypto? I got into crypto, uh, I want to say like late 2014, early 2015. And um, so I have a background in e-commerce and, and technical. So I, I run a website for um, an apparel brand. And so I've always been a pretty technically minded, um, business minded as well. And so uh, I, I was first exposed to Bitcoin through um, essentially as a payment mechanism. And and how I really got hooked on it, um, I started playing around with it. You know, I got a, a blockchain, uh, blockchain.info like that uh, wallet and I, I bought some Bitcoin and I was like, well, what am I going to do with this? Like, you can't really buy anything. And I thought, you know, I, I'd seen that classic example of the $10 million pizza or whatever. By this time, when I was getting into the field, um, it was just becoming like, oh, wow, if you would really, if you just held on to your Bitcoins, you'd be way better off. But I still couldn't find anything to do with it. And I was still so fascinated with it. So what I, what I ended up doing is um, I, I printed out a QR code um, that had a public address on the front and the private key on the back. And then I laminated it. And I took um, and I put $10 worth of Bitcoin on it. And then I took a dollar bill and I went out to my, my neighborhood right in front of my street in front of my condo building here in Seattle. And I thumbtacked both of them to the telephone pole. I took a picture with my phone. I went back to Reddit and I said, which one's going to go first? And I just left for an, an hour or so. Because I, I honestly knew what the answer would be, right? I'm, I'm, nobody's going to know what the hell a QR code is, and they're going to see a paper dollar stuck to the wall. And, and to my kind of astonishment, this is when you could actually post something to our Bitcoin and not get like completely <laughs> like downvoted immediately. <laughs> so people started being like, "Wow, that's that." Well, and they started debate to the debate about, "Oh, well, it's because you didn't put a logo on it." Oh, it's because nobody the the media is keeping it. And I thought, "Oh, that's kind of interesting." And then I I went back outside, and, the, and it's like it's still there. Like they're both still there. And then, um, so I started doing this kind of almost like live ask me anything thing on Reddit where I would, I would post like a video of some guy walking his dog. He, he like looks up at it and he's like, Oh, what the hell is, and he just kind of shakes his head and walks away. Like this is obviously some stupid prank or something like that. So, and, and then eventually like people started like trying to get hints out of me because it became this like huge scavenger hunt to find out where I put this this QR code on a telephone pole because what I didn't realize when I put this thing on a telephone pole was that anybody in the world could deposit more Bitcoin 
onto the QR code because it was right there. And so you have this kind of, I put $10 on it, but people just, it got all the way up to like $100 of Bitcoin from who knows where, right? And that that struck me. I didn't intend for that to happen, but you know, people started accusing me pretty quickly of of scamming, and then, well, oh, you're just going to go grab the private key and run with your money, so <laughs> don't do anything. And, and and it did cross my mind after people started, you know, piling in on that. But I I left it there, um, and so that became the sort of treasure hunt. And eventually, somebody came by uh, one of the videos I posted. You could see a street sign in the back, and so they came through, grabbed it, and by this time the dollar had been had been gone, but people were, were more interested in the Bitcoin at this point. Um, and what, after that, I was like, uh, it's gone, everybody, it's gone. And then, and the trolls started coming out. They're like, oh yeah, it's gone. Really? It's gone. Right. Uh, but so whoever took it then had some hash power and they created a vanity, uh, URL. Um, and the first part of the, the address that they transferred the tokens to was coin uh pole sister that is awesome yeah so i don't i don't know who it was <laughs> i tried to get in touch with them uh but they never responded to me um if, if they're out there listening you're welcome <laughs> well, maybe we'll do it again someday that's an awesome story <laughs> yeah that's that's how i got into bitcoin and, and ever since it's been sort of or into crypto in general um and then from there i started learning i, I was like i was reading everything I could get my hands on, like, like we all do. Right. And eventually came across, uh, Ethereum and what Vitalik was working on. This must've been, um, 2014, some, somewhere around there. Got in early on, on Ethereum, eventually started working on different projects. Um, and at this point now I, I started the Ethereum, Seattle Ethereum meetup group. And from here I kind of, um, participate in, all, any any interesting blockchain application that kind of comes across my way, I'm I'm all for that. So Steemit or Archain Co-op, which is a, a, a brand new kind of offshoot from Scenario, and I um, started my own little kind of consulting business called OnChain Consulting, for which I kind of funnel all of these activities through. So that's kind of my story in a nutshell. So what do you see happening in 2017? I think we're going to start to see some real proof of concept apps and some stuff that's actually kind of usable. And I, and I would say definitely the, the really the most usable application in blockchain world right now is got to be steam it. Like that's the one people really understand or steam the blockchain. You go there, you post stuff. If people like it, you make money. Like that's really easy. And not only that, but the demographics of that community are normal demographics, meaning there there are actually women there participating in this <laughs> ecosystem. There are people Dude, of other that, languages. There are all this kind of stuff. I'll interject there. I think the situation is, is improving tremendously. I mean, I definitely don't uh, don't find it remarkable to see uh, to, to find women in blockchain communities. Uh, no, and and I think um, if if something is not important to you, um, it's not that you're not paying attention or that it's not an interesting topic. It's just not important to you because there are lots of other things in your life that are important. So when blockchains and, or any technology for that instance really starts to make a difference in people's life, any people really, that's when you start to see real, um, diversity, I think. But even still like just getting these things off the ground, 
diversity of opinion and perspective is really valuable. So I think it is more of a criticism of the sciences in general that our society has not placed more emphasis on getting a diverse amount of opinion and interest and frankly, just encouragement of all people who want to be involved with anything technical. It's not, um, a st- it, the stereotypes are not productive at, at all, but it's a, it's a legacy of, of society that we've, we have to overcome and we should overcome. So in 2017, when we do have a, a broader array of usable uh, of usable applications that are applicable to a broader range of people with more diverse interests, then we will see our community become more diverse. So Steemit is one great example. I mean, obviously, it's an astounding example, although it's just a bit weird, not weird, it's just a bit wrong how much of the monetary base of Steam is in the hands of the founders, I feel. Yeah, and that's a legitimate, um, That's, or I, I wouldn't necessarily say it's a legitimate criticism because nobody seems to be concerned that Mark Zuckerberg is a billionaire, for instance, and everybody seems to be just fine using Facebook and having their data stolen from them and used to power advertisements and not get paid for any of the content they produce. So given the status quo, I think Steemit is an angel. Let's, I, I, I mean... But you're you're right. It's not equitable. Um, is it could be more equitable and it could get better. But man, like let's not split hairs considering where the where the um, you know the centralized services have got us. Um, it's far more concentration of power in in Facebook than you have in Steam. Yeah, well, at, at work in uh, in the consensus communications team, we were talking about. Uh, how we devote our time as far as extending our reach. And what you have is Facebook, which is 40% of the internet. Uh, you've got 30%, which is Google. And then the rest of it is distributed among the rest of uh, the rest of these platforms. And the rise of medium has been really astounding. And there was a weird moment where, personally, I realized that medium had replaced WordPress. Because it has with their publishing platform now don't have a WordPress site, <laughs> yeah. have a medium, uh, have a medium uh-huh. and they've, they've recognized this as well, yeah. have a medium publication, change the, uh, have a custom URL so that it, um, so that it just fits perfectly in with your navigation on your site and skin your medium uh, publication. So it looks very similar to your site. Um, and you've got the advantage of all of their SEO that still, you still enjoy the benefit of it for the rest of your traffic for the rest of your site and um and you get this automated publishing thing it never breaks down it's not all stupid and miserable like wordpress with bloody plugins and stuff they've got their built-in analytics it's incredible and yet it's fully centralized and they've captured something that was at one stage fully diverse and uh, and everyone managed for themselves it's a bit of a bait and switch and, and I know this is a bit of a controversial statement, but I really do believe what you are getting in return, ease of use and all that SEO juice and all that other stuff, is really not, um, you're not getting what you deserve from the content that you produce. Attention, any kind of attention that, that you can gather from any work that you produce is so valuable. 
And what they're giving you in, in exchange for that attention is pretty menial. I think when we look back at this age, we, we will feel like we were serfs on working the land for no compensation at all. But the efforts of our labor that we toil on now are being completely monetized by other people. And what they're giving us back in return is sort of like, it's, it's, it's nice. I'm not saying it's bad, but um, it's not what it could be. It's not what it should be. And, and that's going to change. I think that really does need to change. So you sent me a, uh, an article uh, that you published a couple of weeks ago on Steemit uh, entitled Help Emma Fight Cystic Fibrosis. And it was a really interesting in that it's a request for contributions from the, uh, from the community to go toward funding a, an individual's uh, medical care. So what was your inspiration for choosing that avenue? How well did it, and how well did it go? And how well did it go compared to the, uh, the QR code stapled to the power pole? Well, I, I would say this one had uh, a much higher bar of social <laughs> justice in, involved. Um, and so Emma is a, is a family friend. Um, I've known her parents for the last um, t- 12 or 15 years. Um, so my, this was an experiment for me, just as I, I tend to run my life in a series of, of, for better or worse, experiments of trying to figure out what it means to be a human. And, and I've got this passion for blockchain, and I've got these friends that I love, and they're, they're in a time of need. And I thought, what can I do or how can I use this tool in order to help my friends and maybe do some good in the world? But um, I do know a thing or two about the way the world works, so I had, I had to f- structure this in a particular – I wanted to structure it in a particular way that was slightly different. Because if you actually go to Steemit, which was the, ch- the, the platform I chose to experiment with, I could have I easily written a smart contract and posted it to Reddit and you know, done this something on Ethereum. But it was far easier just to write this up and then try to use that post to gather the funds. Um, so what, 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 that, what that looked like was um, I wanted it to be honest – and authentic and real, and I wanted all of the money that was raised to go to the people it was supposed to go to. Um, but if you notice on Steemit, there's that I'm not the first one to try this, right? And there's quite a lot of difference between the post that I wrote and your typical post. And what I mean by that is people will say, I'm going to donate all of the proceeds from this post to this thing. But what I found out that that's actually a lot harder than you might think to actually do all of that and do all of the accounting and make sure it all goes through just right. So let me just walk you through what I was trying to do here in my experience with this post. So um, Emma is um, was born with cystic fibrosis, which is a, uh, a respiratory disease, and it's it's typically fatal. Uh, though she has beaten a lot of the odds, but she requires a lot of medical care in order to survive. And her dad, which was uh, my wife's crew coach in college where we met, um, that was their primary source of, of healthcare. And he lost his job uh, about a year ago or six months ago. And so um, they're in a position now where if there's any gap in, in care, it could be, it could be fatal. Um, 
And so they, that, uh, I didn't start a GoFundMe campaign. One of the other, one of our mutual friends did. I saw this campaign and I thought, okay, how could I funnel money into this? So I wrote, I wrote this up. This is, this is the people. These are how I know them. I posted a picture of Emma so you can see who she is. I mean, it's, it's easier for us to identify with one story as opposed to many stories. So I, I knew that this particular story that is personal to me is going to be relatable to other people. So that's one thing that I knew that would uh, potentially lend itself to this medium as for an appeal. And then I said in there, I'm going to prove or I want people to hold me accountable to this claim that all the money is going to go to Emma and her family. And then quickly somebody, and I, and I just said it, right? I just said it out loud uh, on, the, on the blog post. And then somebody said, hey, um, and I also committed to a uh, thousand steam dollars of my own dollars. And then somebody said, hey, uh, you should have done that before. You should actually put your money where your mouth is before you're writing. And that was absolutely 100% correct. I, I, in retrospect, I should have already had the transaction queued up. But that, I kind of went into high gear at that point, and I started all of the transactions required in order to move all of the cryptocurrency from Steam all the way to the GoFundMe page, which is another step in the process of like verification, right? So you can see that GoFundMe is a generally um, you know, reputable, reputable uh, crowdfunding platform for these types of things. So what happened was I said all of the claims or, or all of the upvotes from, from this post will go to Emma. That can be viewed on my wallet, where you can see every single um, every single reward that I received from this post. So you can go and look at it. You can also see in my wallet that there were people that sent me uh, Steam tokens and Steam dollars, and then they put in the memo, "This is for Emma." And what I did is then I took uh, I took a double entry accounting method. I created a spreadsheet. And I created a, a credit and a debit for each um, Steam or Steam dollar. And I converted them all into Steam in the spreadsheet because I, I needed to, to worry about only one token as opposed to multiple tokens, which was a bit of a headache, but I did that. And then what I did is I took all of those tokens and I put it in the, uh, the, the debit was the transaction out to Poloniex, right, my account, and I made sure it, it all balanced so that everything came in went out, and then I posted all of the trades that I made in, on Poloniex to translate it into Bitcoin, and that made sure that then the next step was to take all of the uh, conversions at the time that I received the Bitcoin, and you can see all the Bitcoin transactions and what their US dollar equivalents were, and then I made subsequent donations on the GoFundMe page. So there were three um, kind of consolidated transactions at the end of that process that went to Emma and her family. One, the first one was the the $1,000 that I'd promised. The second one was there were three donations made to me directly, not through upvoting, but just transfer of steam to my account on that was supposed to go to Emma. So I made that, I consolidated all three of those into one payment to her and her family. And then the first round of payments from that post which happened uh, like the day after the posting, all went. So there were three of them. And that last one I attributed to the Steam, Steam It community. So if you go on the GoFundMe page, you can actually see 
uh, the name is Steam It Community, which the family is immensely grateful for. Um, but that process, it, it seems kind of long and laborious, and, and, it, and it was, and it still is, but it's completely transparent in the sense that you can go, and you could have recreated this um, auditing trail, anyone could have. Like, if you were to do this, Arthur, I could see that you either did or did not do any transfers from your wallet. Um, but I made it a little, little bit easier for people to follow along because I put it all in one place and put each transaction next to it. But the the fact that you can do this with charity makes or, or, or giving allows for something that's not currently available with larger organizations because we think of um, – blockchains as disintermediaries of centralized authorities. And we typically think of evil corporations, but sometimes that can be even benevolent nonprofits. Right now, all of those, those organizations, they have auditors, they have overhead, they have all of these things that, you know, can get in the way of, of giving. And and I'm not meaning to imply that we should get rid of um, centralized, um, you know, nonprofits. In fact, I think that would be a horrible idea. But another option, you know, down that stack might be to do more peer-to-peer giving in the sense of we can support each other financially in a, a very smooth way or a very transparent way that we know where the money went, who it went to, and potentially even what they're going to use it for. Um, and then the last thing I just want to say about this is that from all of those things that I, I'd done, all of the transactions on the Steemit blockchain, I had, as far as I can tell, no transaction fees. Like, I, I don't see any trans. There might be some in here, but it would be minimal, right? The Poloniex fees came to, I want to say, a grand total of like $8. And then the credit card transaction fees alone were $36. So by far, the largest drain of value was the last step when I actually you know, broke out my credit card and sent the money to the GoFundMe page. Like that's where most of the value was sucked out. And the reason it was sucked out is because Visa and MasterCard know that there's no other option and they can charge a large fee. And this would be just called rent seeking behavior basically. And that's what uh, in a block, like if that last step wasn't there, more of that money could have gone to where it was supposed to and done more good. So I, I think it was a, a pretty successful um, experiment. Uh, overall, we raised, uh, with my $1,000, we raised almost $1,500 for Emma and her family. And there'll be another round of payouts as soon as that article, um, if there are any more upvotes on that thing, it kind of can restart the counter for uh, payouts. So there's still another payout round to come. Or um, if anybody sends me anything on Steemit, um, and then, and in the memo says, you know, send this to Emma and her family. I will add it to the spreadsheet, and I will make sure that it goes all one hundred percent to that fund. And then you can see it. And I posted the link to the spreadsheet in the body of the the article, so people can kind of you know easily follow along and see what it is that I'm doing. Hey, well, it's fantastic. I'll uh, I'll make a donation myself uh, as soon as uh, my ether turns into Bitcoin. <laughs> well, I appreciate that, Arthur. Hey, no worries. Of course, good cause. I, uh, I I did know someone who had cystic fibrosis. Well, still do. She's uh, she's alive and well. That's great. So, uh, how do you describe yourself? Uh, you're the uh, community organizer for MakerDAO. 
Uh, no, I, I used to, but um, not so much anymore. Um, we have this kind of notion of, uh, of a governor, so that's that's kind of what I what I would kind of describe myself now. So while I do participate a lot in, with the community, I, I run the the governance process for the most part. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. What's the governance process of Maker? Okay, so um, it's so there's the the main governance process, or the, I should say, the on-chain governance process is a multi-sig, which is a a four of six multi-sig, and this is we're actually on the the second group of individuals that are in this multi-sig. I've been on both groups, but what happens is every week there's a like a board meeting, which we call like the the formal governance meeting, and that happens on Sunday mornings, uh, West Coast time. It's at sixteen hundred UTC. And that will be, I create the agenda for that. I also like keep the minutes and publish the, the notes after the meeting. And then the first, first part, the formal part where it's recorded, which I also do the recording, any proposals that are, that come up will, will be brought up in that formal part. When that happens in the, in the formal governance, which is again, recorded and then published to SoundCloud. So what I'll do is then I'll, I'll create the actual the transaction that gets published onto the Ethereum network. So proposals would be like move money from the from the maker fund to this person for you know compensation for development work, or um, in another case, you know set this variable in this smart contract because the root authority for MakerDAO is the admin. It's the it's the multisig. So I I will compose those, send those out. Though anyone in the in the in the multisig can do that, I'm the one that generally does because we don't want to step on each other's toes. So it's just easier if one person is sort of responsible for getting it out. Then I'll post that. Hey, here's the uh, the proposal. Confirm it. You've got three days to do it, which is our kind of time lock. And then after that, it's triggered, and then the action actually happens on chain. It's uh, interesting because it's very. It's not very autonomous right it's a actual uh it's basically a uh it sounds like a an elected roundtable oh it absolutely is and that and that was completely by design and the and the last time we spoke about this that was um i hope like communicated that this, we're still in a bootstrapping phase so um the original when it was first created it was just like one guy like that was maker right rune that's him and then it, it evolved to now it's it's more of a group of decision makers who are the core part of the pro, of the of the system and in the future we'll have a, what we're calling a sentinel stake voting system which is um, a, a decentralized uh, mechanism for making changes and updates to the system that is um, based on the token mkr and that will that that handoff though that happens the multisig will then issue a transaction to the system that says move, move ultimate root control from this entity to that entity and then that will be the new governance platform so it's a it's a it's a stair step to decentralization and autonomy i guess you'd say okay i uh, i there's i recently had a discussion with uh Pally Brandgard and we were talking about mm-hmm. voting and in a sense yes. the tyranny of democracy i saw a uh, um, Vitalik Buterin, someone put the question to him, does he believe in democracy? And his answer was a fervent no with an asterisk. Uh, mm-hmm. But I feel like a general distrust of democracy is something that, given that it is 
these uh, these popu- large populations are prone to manipulation. Uh, you you get the agenda of a uh, an information source can infect the uh, the decision making ability of of a populace. Uh, I think specifically of CoinDesk, which is a very dubious publication but has tremendous reach. With this kind of uh, kind of media manipulation, I wonder how effective can a democracy be in this. Uh, the the operation of something like make a DAO where there are decisions about uh, economic models that, that need to be made. Right. And and I think uh, I heard most of what you're saying there. And, and essentially what uh, the critique for democracy is, um, it can be gained. And I, th- I think that's not uh, an, an unusual critique. It, it's definitely true. And we do address that kind of specifically in the sense of um, Maker is not designed to be actively managed. Um, there won't be regular votes, and in fact, there might not. There could be a time when there are, are no more votes, um, meaning there are no more things that need to be um, decided. That would sort of be like the system was designed well enough that it's it does a very simple thing, right? It, there are mechanisms to create a stable coin, and that's it. Like it's not trying to do anything else. It's not trying to be a dynamic organization. It's just a product. It's it's. That's it. So what I mean by that is the Sentinel voting system sounds like it's going to be um, a democracy. And in some sense it is because there is a vote, but it's highly favors the status quo. It would almost be like if the United States government could only do constitutional changes, right? So it, it takes a lot, it takes a pretty high bar in order to actually do anything with the Sentinel stake voting system. And then there will be lower levels of control, say things like um, futarchy. So this would be, uh, but that's not on the roadmap for, let's say, 2017, right? But we, we, we envision governance mechanisms for smaller day-to-day decisions to being outsourced to other types of ways of doing things. But the highest level of structural core things of how the system worked are still going to be, at some sense, a stake vote mechanism. What it sounds like is you've built a way that decisions like the most recent hard fork of, uh, or not the most recent actually, it's uh, it's two hard forks ago now, <laughs> <laughs> right? Phew. Um, the uh, the 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 Dow hard fork um, that that led to Ethereum Classic. Uh, there have been a lot of uh, complaints that that was not fairly conducted and that the community was not effectively uh, polled, which are, you know, to to be frank, bullshit. But <laughs> nonetheless, um, I mean, we, you know, we all know it's, that's not the case. I mean, they, they had, uh, they, it, it was vote, vote by miners. There was carbon vote as well. And, and there was an overwhelming, uh, there was an overwhelming community and social consensus that can be observed in the price yeah. the only thing was that there was a small group of uh, idealistic defectors who found uh, who were were spurred on and supported by external uh, by external forces so in a sense what this would enable is the ability to say quite plainly that no this uh, this protocol change has been agreed upon to a to a predetermined threshold mm-hmm. that was part of the social consensus of those who bought the token in the first place. Exactly. Yeah. And and again, um, 
then there might be some. Uh, I, I'd like to think of MakerDAO more similar to Bitcoin in the sense of its autonomy, meaning there's no Bitcoin organization, there's no Bitcoin CEO. It's it's a DAO in the sense of that there's there's rules, there's mechanisms, there's a network, and there are actors. That's what we're going for with Maker. And if we're successful, we I will put myself out of a job, uh, and fairly soon. I think within the next six months. We should have a pretty robust proof of concept, and there won't be need for this multi-sig thing. So what were the origins of MakerDAO, and who was responsible for uh, laying out this, uh, this governance mechanism roadmap? Yeah, so the, the origin was essentially a blog post about a year and a half ago, and that was written by uh, Rune Christensen, who's our, uh, the founder of Maker. And uh, from that one post, it was it was kind of laid out some of the basic ideas of a stable coin. It was called the E-Dollar. And from there, uh, Rune received some support from another member on Reddit from the community who thought this was a good idea. Rune hooked up with some um, technical expertise. They started, uh, they all came, a lot of them came out of the um, BitShares um, community. So they had some experience with running sort of these decentralized organization type things. And one thing led to another. There's a community built up around it. And now it's to the point where there's, you know, roughly four or five full-time developers, a community of several hundred, relatively active, um, a good roadmap, uh, products that are out the door. There's we uh, built a decentralized exchange, you know, some other things like that. A, a roadmap and a, a real vision to create um, a new type of stable token that could have very wide-ranging utility through through the rest of the network. This is such an ambitious project, and as you said, it came from the BitShares. You know, it, it was inspired a lot by uh, by the BitShares guys who were not successful, and and we saw the um, and we saw you know Nubits wasn't successful either. Mm-hmm. What I'm, you know, I mean, that was catastrophic. What happened with Nubits? Um, yeah. And uh, even though, honestly, I I, I owned both BitShares and Nubits at various uh, various times, and used Nubits actually to transfer value. I found it to be a really useful tool while it worked. Um, I've, you know, terrible for the people who were holding it when it when it collapsed. So, how what is it about this uh, this stable uh, stable token that lends itself to a DAO like construct? Yeah, that's a that's a really good point because you you mentioned something like Nubits, right? So there, or or any other type of um, stable token, because there are others right now. Tether is another example of some level of stable thing, right? And and, and usually what you'll see is okay, well maybe we'll just peg this to something else that's stable, and then the issue becomes well how what what does peg mean actually, right? And in the sense of Nubits, they had these funds. Um, and that they would put up these big buy and sell walls on the other in a market. So when anybody would try to basically break the peg, they had this these people that were incentivized with rewards to try to maintain the peg. So you, it was kind of like this tug of war, right? And all it takes is a loss of confidence or somebody falling asleep at the wheel, which exactly what happened, right? And that peg is destroyed and then confidence and then nobody believes that it's really, you know, a dollar anymore. And so that's just one way you can do it. Um, Another way you can do it is have a lot of um, fiat currency in a bank account and then just say, prove somehow, maybe through a bank statement or some other way, that 
I have all of these reserves. I, I'm therefore issuing this token that's backed against these reserves. So therefore, by a transitive property, they're the same. And that way you could have a, you know, a, a state. And this is something what uh, more similar to what, you know, there are other projects that are working on a mechanism like this. But what Maker is trying to do, it, it's, it's a little bit different, right? So it's, we're focusing on stability, not, not a peg, right? So we're not trying to be the dollar or the representation of the dollar or the euro or any other particular currency. What we're trying to, or, or even be the same value over time. The point is, like what we've seen like today in crypto in general, like the thing, all of them are just skyrocketing right now. They're just, all of them are in double digit growth over the last 24 to 48 hours, which feels really great right now when all of your crypto tokens are just insane, growing insanely. And you know what? It feels just as bad and horrible when they're doing the exact same thing in the red. What you really want is a token that doesn't change a lot in a short amount of time, but either could float up or float down depending on, you know, what's going on in the world. And that's kind of what you would think of your, you know, your local currency, like a dollar or a euro. It doesn't feel like it changes value at the grocery store, unless you're in a hyperinflationary situation like Venezuela, but it is floating against other currencies. So in that sense, it does change value over time. And based on other factors in the world, maybe your buying power increases, or maybe your selling potential increases. This would be like a trade imbalance. So, you know, maybe you would want your currency to be less because you because you're an exporter, or maybe you like to take vacations, so you want your currency to be be high. So the crypto equivalent of that, what could that be? Um, that's what Maker is trying to to produce. It's trying to produce something that doesn't fluctuate a lot. So that that requires. Um, mechanisms that have sort of like these feedback loops and that's why you get this kind of odd dualistic token thing where you've got the mkr and you've got die and sometimes it's it's even communicated that the mkr is the um it takes the volatility away like it almost like that's the thing you want to speculate on mkr it's going to be wildly changing in value all the time and so that's part of the, the the idea that from every action in one place that there's a, a reaction in the other and then that those things can feed back to each other um, but that it's it produces something that's stable and useful and fungible and all the things you want money to be so how does this lend itself to a uh, a DAO uh, organizational structure yeah, so that's a that's a great point, right? So if we're talking about not getting into the details of the actual mechanics that we're just taking on faith that you know the listener will have done some research on Maker and, and the mechanisms. Well, well, there's the other there's the other podcast. there's the other podcast. So um, let's just say that we we have the sound uh, the sound economic policy that if if the system works the way it should, then you get this this token, the stable token, right? So what why is this a DAO, right? That's the question. So the, it's a DAO in the sense of it it has a product. It has something that it does. There are incentives. There are actors. And there are, are rules. That's that's what a, I, I think a DAO is. It's, there is this idea uh, when, quote, the DAO came out that it could be something. And I think it could be definitely something more than just that. Um, 
but I think the the notion that a DAO is either like a hedge fund or it's like a crowdfunding thing or it's like an incubator or it's like a traditional corporation or maybe um but in our particular situation it's it's actors acting in best interest according to rules that are laid out in the blockchain and that produces some value or product as a result um but maybe not much more than that. It doesn't necessarily have to be, a DAO doesn't necessarily have to be able to do anything. A DAO has to be able to do something. And this something for us is a stable crypto token. But there needs to be the uh, the intelligent feedback for adjusting to uh, extenuating circumstances or errors in the, uh, in the economic, uh, economic structure that, uh, that, that powers it. Correct. Yes. So there does need to be, um, and that's what we would call governance, right? Uh, error correction. And that's still, for the most part, that's people. But in the, there's no reason to say that in the future, this thing that is maker DAO now won't be run by artificial intelligent algorithms in the future. That's still a possibility. It's, it's, it's a continuum, right? So when we, when we first started this, like I said, it was one guy on Reddit. And then it was two guys working with some developers. And then it was a community. And then it will be maybe prediction markets. And then keep, keep going with it from there. But it's not, it's not really necessarily designed to do a lot of different things. But there are, the, the devil is in the details, right? So there's still going to be things that need to be corrected for, tested, and proven over time. And then the more things that are known the more things that are automated, the further down that, if you think of it like a stack, right? And that, that just becomes, and then new layers get built on top of it. So that at some point, the, the, once you're that far down, it's sort of automatic. So this incremental development toward a, uh, a functioning DAO is in a sense, a lot more, uh, a lot more mature, pragmatic, and patient than what was proposed by uh, by the the team at Slocket, and it sits in between that idea or that model of the the voting token model and something that Pele uh, Pele suggested, which was that a DAO should really be more like Bitcoin and Ethereum, just a complete and uh, and unchanging maybe. Uh, set of uh, of economic incentives that hold this uh, hold this group of people performing uh, mutually supporting actions together. Exactly, and, and I wouldn't even say, and I think Pele would 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 agree that it's not necessarily unchanging, but it's slow moving, right? It's not necessarily going to be reacting hyper reactionary. But in, in but if you look at it, it, it could almost be fractal, right? So, in the sense of like, if you use Bitcoin as an example, uh, the pace at which ASIC development, those application specific integrated circuits, the pace at which those are being produced is breathtakingly fast, right? So, in some sense, you have very rapid change and much collaboration and a lot of decision making happening. But then, when it boils up to a higher level, it looks almost static. But it's really, it's just fractal. So highly dynamic. So that is interesting that you point that out about, uh, about Bitcoin and the, uh, the application-specific hardware, because that does develop. 
uh, tremendously quickly. That's even become mm-hmm. a, a commodity. Essentially, is is hash power is is hashing chips, yeah. and uh, and that is a sector of the Bitcoin ecosystem that is evolving at a tremendous rate. It's the protocol itself that mm-hmm. is relatively static. And I suppose that's because a new piece of hashing hardware can fail because we can always fall back on the old stuff. There's no there's no risk there. It's the mission critical stuff. It's the flying jumbo jets engine that we can't afford to make a mistake as we uh, as we improve its functionality. And and actually if you if you look at it even one level deeper, like the technology underlying the application which is what we just call blockchain. What that is is a way for humans to coordinate. And that skill is what really separates us from the rest of the animal kingdom, right? We can coordinate flexibly and at scale. You can you see other things like insects and bees, and they can coordinate, but they can't coordinate flexibly. And chimps, they can coordinate flexibly, but not at scale. Humans can do that, and any new tool as far as I'm concerned, that makes coordination better, faster, cheaper, whatever, that is a lever for human humanity. And what blockchain, what blockchain technology allows us to do is coordinate better. And right now we're just figuring out how it works. Like there was a time when we just grunted at each other and that was language. Then we got more subtle and more complicated. And now that's how we communicate and that's how we coordinate this is a new paradigm shift in coordination, which we have no idea what the end outcome of this could be or will be. But uh, that's what—that's one of the things I'm so ex- that why I'm so passionate about this space, and not just this one particular project, but many projects, not just Ethereum, but others as well, because I want to see humanity progress in a positive direction. <laughs> It sounds like you've entered the space with a tremendous sense of interest and a desire to experiment uh, and a real focus on the people and the behavior that people exhibit rather than a, a technical mindset, which is quite unique, but also incredibly significant. If you could, uh, could boil down your experience into a single insight into the way people behave and the nature of, of cryptocurrency as people interact with it, how would uh, how would you uh, how would you characterize that? Yeah, so I I do see myself as a bit of a, a bridge because don't get me wrong, I love love the technical parts of this. I love composing, I, and I feel it like a composer composing these transactions and creating these secret keys and this this kind of almost magical power that this this technology has that fascinates me. But when it gets down to it, like. Life is about people. Life is about interactions. Life is about relationships. And it's about getting, you know, moving things forward. And this is a tool. I really do think this is a tool to make life better. And what life life better means is better relationships and, and better community. And so that's where I try to focus my efforts is in that bridge between people and relationships and benefits and implementations and technical um, abilities to actually make that happen, and I and I think the future is absolutely wonderful and, and bright. But there's a there's a flip side to this too, because any of these tools can also be used for any number of 
of horrible things, actually. So we do have to be vigilant and we have to pay attention to what the the potential harm that could be from these technologies and, and, and encourage the positive ones and discourage and put disincentives into those places where we don't want to see this technology abused. And I, and I think that's a really important thing. And that's something that people who don't necessarily have, you know, the technical chops to like get in there and write a protocol. Like that's not something that everybody needs to be able to do. There's so much that you can do by, by, by just experiencing the world and providing your feedback to the people who are to building these, these tools and these applications and just using them or experimenting with them or, you know, telling your friends about them. All of those things are very positive things that, that are going to lead to, to global, I, th- I hope, global change and a sense of real movement in, in the cause of humanity. Um, I know that's a bit grandiose, but that's, that's the way I feel. No, it's fantastic. This has been incredibly insightful. And, uh, and I, I really, it's, it's rare that I get to talk to a person who has insights into how these things are used and can make a difference on the ground, so to speak. So it's, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure, Kenny. And uh, I look forward to seeing what kind of insights you produce for us in the future. Well, I, I really appreciate the time, Arthur. And let's, uh, let's absolutely do this again sometime. We surely hope you liked today's episode. You can find more at etherreview.info. You can contact us at contact at etherreview.info. And you can follow me on Twitter at Arthur Falls. Mm-hmm.